0: If you're lost with Jude, it's the book Before Revelation. Jude was a mysterious character as far as I can judge. The only one I really knew was Hey Jude from the Beatles fans. <laughs> and that was Julian, their son, John's son. In doing a, a short check, perhaps Jude was a cousin of Jesus, perhaps he was a brother, perhaps he was a stepbrother. Uh, the scholars don't really know so a mysterious character but the message that he brings to us is a very strong one it's similar to the message that James brings and similar to the message I think that was in Peter 2. Dear friends I had been eagerly planning to write to you about the salvation we all share but now I find that I must write about something else, urging you to defend the faith that God has entrusted once for all time to his holy people. I say this because some ungodly people have wormed their way into your churches, saying that God's marvelous grace allows us to live immoral lives. The condemnation of such people was recorded long ago, for they have denied our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. When these people eat with you in your fellowship meals, commemorating the Lord's love, they are dangerous reeves that can shipwreck you. And now we come to the greatest number of similes I've ever seen in a paragraph. They are like shameless shepherds who care only for themselves. They are like clouds blowing over the land without giving any rain. They are like trees in autumn that are doubly dead, for they bear no fruit and have been pulled up by the roots. They are like wild waves of the sea churning up the foam of their shameful deeds. They are like wandering stars doomed forever to blackest darkness. But you, my dear friends, must remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ predicted. They told you that in the last times there would be scoffers whose purpose in life is to satisfy their ungodly desires. These people are the ones who are creating divisions among you. They follow their natural instincts because they do not have God's spirit in them. But you, dear friends, must build each other up In your most holy faith pray in the power of the Holy Spirit and await the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ who will bring you eternal life in this way you will keep yourselves safe in God's love and you must show mercy to those whose faith is wavering rescue others by snatching them from the flames of judgment show mercy to still others but do so with great caution, hating the sins that contaminate their lives. And Jude's words were, May you be given more and more of God's kindness, peace, and love. Amen.
1: Thank you so much, Alan. May the Lord add his blessing to this reading of the word. Gracious Lord, as we come to this reading of your word, we humbly ask that you would open our hearts I pray that I would decrease this morning and that you, by your mercy, would increase. And I ask that, Lord, that if your word, as I believe, is living and active, I pray that every person here, that something of what is said this morning would come from your throne room, would pierce hearts, and that we would know there truly is a living God. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I've called this morning's message Spiritual Crisis or False Teacher, Discerning the Differences. And so what I want to do this morning is for the first half, we're not going to get into Jude a lot, um, and, and, and then the second half we'll, we'll look at Jude. And I've let Jude do the heavy lifting, call it cowardice, but he's quite direct. Um, I'm going to be a little more gentle in what I say. Uh, let Jude, Jude's done the heavy lifting there. Uh, but uh, what I want to do first look is look at the spiritual crises and, of course, uh, uh, false teachers, and there are some interconnections there. And um, I want to say that Tim Keller, who's a pastor in New York City, planted a church there, uh, grew to thousands of people from atheists, agnostics, lots of people who hated the Christian religion, would have never have darkened the doorway, would have thought it would be the craziest thing. Uh, They encountered his ministry and the biblical teaching and came to faith in the living God in that church. And he's brought some resources in, so some of what I'm saying this morning is from him. In fact, sometimes if you hear something really amazing, uh, it may be from someone else. I do try to reference it all uh, so that I never take credit for something that someone else says. Uh, so, in the New Testament and Old Testament, there is two strands that are different but interrelated. One is of people in the Bible going through a spiritual crisis where they doubt God's goodness, they waver in faith, they feel the power of temptation. Perhaps they even deny the Lord three times. Or in other cases, they go away from the Lord for many years, decades even. And then in late life, they come back. And then, of course, there are those who are what the Old Testament calls false prophets, are mentioned many times in the Old Testament, and people for whom Jesus describes in many different ways as ravenous wolves dressed in sheep's clothing. They rend and destroy the faith of vulnerable people. Now, the two can be interrelated. For example, false teachers can create a spiritual crisis within innocent victims. For example, I'm not banging on against the Catholic Church here. So, you know, we love the Catholic Church. You Catholics listening to us online, uh, it's great to have you here. But the Catholic Church, there was their sexual abuse uh, scandals, which with the clergy covering it up at all levels. And this did create a spiritual crisis within many who were involved in that church. They damaged the faith of many. And it's not just the Catholic Church. Other denominations were involved as well. So at other times, Christians go through a spiritual crisis where they doubt the faith they came to in their childhood, uh, either in in teenage years or later in adult. And they're in crisis. And if they turned up to a home group and decided to open up, they might say they doubt the Bible or they've heard this X, Y, or Z philosophy in X, Y, or Z place. And gosh, it sounds very persuasive. What is the Bible saying? Now, some of these crises are related to the cultural moment that the society is going through at any one point. So for example, uh, uh, I know this is still tender, I've still got a bit of tenderness over the whole vaccine the way the nation is, so it feels tender in my heart as I say this. But if you were to say five years ago, Alistair, there's going to be significant tensions in churches around the nation over vaccination, I would have said you're crazy. I could have said, no, no. <laughs> so who would have thought that would be a possibility? And yet I know of Christians, faithful, long-serving members in churches. Remember, the churches have two pathways. We could say vaccination, passport, card, and you can come. Or you have very onerous restrictions where the services are online. So some churches said only the vaccinated, those with a vaccinated passport can turn up. And some people got offended by that. And I know of Christians who are no longer attending churches because their churches decided to restrict it to the vaccine passport only. And here we decided to be all in, vaccinated, unvaccinated, as long as you love Jesus, we don't care. And some people were hurt by that as well. It was a cultural moment. I'm not blaming which side, I'm not saying we made the right decision either. I'm just saying it was a moment we went through. And in the Presbyterian church, I've noticed, and this has been a generation thing. So in this church here, we've got young to old. And so I've actually seen all these ones. So in the first half of the 20th century, all the way up to the 1970s and maybe early 80s, in the Presbyterian church, there was a huge moment of crisis over the reliability of the Bible. And so I had people saying to me, I don't know if Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. I don't know if God heals today in miracles and things like this. And this came out of this particular thing the Presbyterian church was going through. If you went to a, Pentecostal church, they didn't have any such doubts about that. In fact, they, 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 they they were in a different sort of space. And then from the 1980s on, there was doubts about those with sexual ethics. And then in the last five years, I've just seen a change again. Now it's into the Genesis passage, God created us male and Female, and that now with gender dysphoria and all the things that are going through there. And so these things can be happening, whether it's vaccination or whatever. And I'm not going to talk about any of those particular crises. I'm just naming them, and some of you will go, oh, yeah, I, I get that. Or, man, that's me. Or whatever it happens to be. But those were the things that are going through. So Francis Schaeffer, he was a prominent Christian of the 20th century. It's okay if you haven't heard of him, but he was fairly influential. And he had grown up, I believe, in the States under a fiery fundamentalist, and I mean that term in its technical term, not as a, as a criticism, uh, of a leader called Carl McIntyre. He was part of McIntyre's Bible Presbyterian Church. And the main burden of this group was to denounce in a highly combative way anyone that disagreed with him on any, everything and tell them they should separate from the mainline churches. And so Schaefer and his wife Edith, they were loyal workers within this movement. They'd grown up, they had bought, and they were involved in the, sort of the whole community communities of a bubble of this worldview and then in 47 and 48 they moved to Europe to do evangelization training and writing but after three years in Switzerland he wrote this I faced a spiritual crisis in my own life I told Edith for the sake of honesty I had to go all the way back to my agnosticism I'm not even sure God exists and think through the entire matter of my Christian faith I had to rethink my reasons for being a Christian. This happened in 51 and 52, and it was a difficult time for Edith. She wasn't having those doubts. In her book, Tapestry, she recounts, I was scared at her husband searching and struggling and rethinking. And using the metaphors from the uh, book, Pilgrim's Progress, if you remember that book, she knew that he was in the slough of Despond and Doubting Castle. The question was, would he ever emerge? Her account of those months indicate that she prayed far more than she talked to her husband. And so after talking it through with other Christians like Martin Lloyd-Jones, does anyone remember that UK preacher, Martin Lloyd-Jones from the 20th century, he did come back to a faith that was deeper and more orthodox and biblical, and God used him wonderfully. But one of some of the reasons that he went through that crisis was that the church he'd grown up and this might sound you might think it's crazy, but they majored in minors, So smoking was a cardinal sin. Uh, Drinking any form of alcohol was a cardinal sin. So you can imagine going to Europe. After Europe on a Sunday, the Lutheran churches, they'd often go to the pub for a beer afterwards. That's their version of the thing. So he turns up in Switzerland and his whole worldview, and this is he thought this was the worst evil in the world, and so everything started unraveling and he had to go back. What is true? Is the Bible true? He had to think it through on his own terms. Most Christians go through, if not a spiritual crisis, then a a re-evaluation of their faith at different life stages. And some come back to faith, and some walk away and never come back. Some walk away but later come back. All sorts of in-betweens. And so Tim Keller suggests these are are some prominent times that create spiritual crisis within children within Christian homes. So, uh, in a book, Archibald Alexander's 1844 book, he gives it the wonderful title "Thoughts on Religious Experience." Or, automatically falling asleep, uh, but he says that this: that often children are growing up, even ones that come to have a faith in the adult years. It's like they come to five or six. And they go to Bible, little Bible class and they hear about Jesus and the, and the lost little sheep and the good little shepherd. And they say, a, I want to be like Jesus. I want to follow Jesus. So they pray maybe a sinner's prayer or something like that. And then a few years later, they start to doubt that. And what Archibald was saying in 1844 is it's a bit like the tide. And he says it's hard for parents to say, was that decision when they were six, was that real? We don't know. But at each time, those kids, as they're growing older, are re-evaluating their faith. And that's normal. And it can be a bit of a crisis at different times. Two, experiences of suffering and injustice. as where a Christian faces an unusual amount of suffering or injustice, either in their own lives or in the lives of those around them. And the Psalms are... Full of vivid examples of believers in the Lord who are in the grip of such a crisis so you can look at Psalm 39 and 88 they actually end in darkness Psalm 39 ends his psalm by saying he wants to get away from God it's like finished the sermon finishing this morning and someone getting up I want out of here nothing more to do with Christianity and you go oh well he's just like Psalm 39 right there <laughs> So, and then Psalm 88, you know, saying, "Darkness this is my only friend, God, you're not really there for me. And Psalm 73, a real psalm on a person going through a crisis where he talks about that he's crushed by the injustice of life and the prosperity of the wicked. What? If you really are, God, what are you doing, God? The bad people are prospering and getting richer, lies are a thing, and you're not doing anything. And he said he was in this absolute crisis of faith. And you see that. And people often assume that the crisis was actually for a short time. It could have been for years. And he was discouraging others. He was a brute before God. You see very vivid, strong language that I couldn't get away with saying about God, but the psalmist evidently does. And in the midst of that crisis, he comes back to faith. And the moment for him was when he walks into the sanctuary of God, maybe years after being away, and he walks in for whatever reason, and he encounters the one, the true and the living God. Do you know that God? You've got to know it personally in your heart. Only that can get you through crises. And three, disillusionment with Christian leaders and with themselves. So Robert Murray McEntire, he's a preacher, a Scottish preacher, I think from the 18th century or 19th century, cites an incident in Acts 14 where the crowds began to worship Paul and Barnabas as gods. Because they'd done this healing gig thing. I said, wow, you're amazing. We love you. You're a god. And at the end of that time, because they didn't fit what they wanted, they got to kill Paul and Barnabas. And this ancient Scottish preacher says this. He says that, yes, while deep grief and disappointment over a fallen leader is natural when they don't meet your expectations, if your faith completely evaporates over over it, it may well be that your faith was not in God, but it was in that individual. So if you come to church this morning... Because of any individual, and I don't think anyone would come to church because of me. I'm not that good. Thank you, Lord. But if someone did come to church, that's a problem. We come to meet the one, the true, the living God. And And just equally to that, there is those who have a time in their life where maybe they screw up. Maybe they have an affair like David. Or maybe they deny Jesus like Peter. But a moment of personal sin happens in their life. Their marriage is broken things. They think... I thought I was a good person. How could I have done such a terrible thing? And I thought, I thought this Christian faith was real. Where are you, God? And they have a crisis. And what is spiritual reality? And that was what Francis Schaeffer also went through. Never, And number four, never learning to distinguish between background, secondary, and primary beliefs. There are lots of beliefs that are background and secondary. Like, do we baptize infants or do we baptize adults? Right? And some here will say, yes, we can baptize infants. And others say, no, you are got to be believers' baptism. We have some, there's, there's d- different beliefs on worship. Does, does God heal today uh, for everyone? Or was the miracles only in the first three centuries? That's a cessationist belief. I'm not going to get into that. Or there's various views on end times and various views on how God created the world. And so these are important, but they're secondary what's going on. And so, for example, when I was at Kerry College doing Luke's, The paper on Luke, my lecturer, who's a Scottish Baptist pastor, said that in Scotland, in the 1970s, uh, there was this guy going around doing end times about how the Lord was going to return. And he had all these particular details and all these details right down to the thing about the European Union. Large numbers of people were coming on and hearing those messages. And as that was happening, and when he got it wrong, so when what he was saying wasn't true, he ended up taking his own life rather than admitting that he was wrong yeah. and had an absolute tragedy for his family who, 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 who saw a father. Why? Perhaps because he had made his particular small belief the be-all and end-all, and perhaps it was also pride. He had this following, he had people saying, you're great, this is amazing, we've never heard anyone say anything else, and when it proved that he couldn't fulfill, he didn't have some special insight into what God was going to do in the future he couldn't cope with it, so he took his own life. And number five, living in bubbles in environmental faith. And so Tim Keller, <coughs> talking about this in the United States context, says that in the United States, there's two Americas. So there's a smaller part of America, which is called in over United States of America. And basically, in these little towns, everyone goes to church. Unless you're a Jew, you might go to the synagogue. And some people, if you're not really a believer in God, you might go to the Unitarian Church. This is how it works in, in, in these little places. And they, they mix a bit of Christ, Ameri- Christianity and American religion. Somehow the, the, um, everyone has a right to have a gun and low taxes and voting the Republican Party and American flags everywhere. It's all sort of intermeshed a bit. And basically what um, uh, Tim Keller would say was that they'd have these people growing up. Within these environments in small town America, never leaving, going to the Baptist church with everyone else, hearing that Jesus is good and Jesus is the way. And of course, everyone in the world believes Jesus is the way, right? And then they go to New York City and there they turn up and there their next door neighbor is a Buddhist. Really kind Buddhists who perhaps put their recycling out. And their boss is a Muslim and their best colleague at work who always gives them a coffee as they turn up as an atheist in a same-sex relationship. And suddenly this whole world suddenly gets uh, shaken and, the, and their bubble is popped and they wonder how does the Christian faith relate to what's happening. And that's actually what happened to Francis Schaeffer when he went to Switzerland after growing up in this little town to go reach uh, uh, the Swiss people. And so so, so that there, and so th- this is what it is, the fundamental, this, uh, this is Tim Keller quoting, the fundamental schism in American cultural and political economic life, there's a quicker growing, economically vibrant, morally relativist, urban orientated, culturally adventuresome, sexually polyphomorphous, I guess it means anything goes, an ethnically diverse nation, and then there's small town, nuclear family, religiously orientated, white centric, other America. And so I actually remember talking to uh, um, 20 years ago to an American doing the Bible college course. And her, in her town, she said, everyone went to church. I said, everyone? Like, everyone? She said, yes, everyone. Town of 2000. You can Im- I just can't imagine that. And uh, you can imagine her going from that town into the New York City. And all of the things there that would take place. it could change of worlds, can throw you out of the Christian faith altogether, or it can lead you to make your faith more biblical, internally consistent, experientially authentic, and intellectually robust. And I have to say myself, I've gone through all five of those crises at one point or another. And for me, I've seen people even come ministers who've walked out on their faith, but for me, I've come out through each one of those. And I have come to believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the Father. No one gets to him but through him. But these, so this here is the thing, that there's lots of crises. But in Jude, and we're running out of time here, but I want to, the next five, ten minutes, just want to focus in on this. Is that there is this chapter here where he looks at both those in crisis have mercy on those whose faith is wavering. But it also engages with those who are engaging with false teaching. We find that in Judah, not just in Judah, but through the whole Bible, is these two strands. A watch out for false teaching and a have a mercy on those who are figuring things out. And so what is false teaching? It's false teaching is anything that's a core part of the biblical faith. And someone come up into this space here and say, don't believe it. It's wrong. It's, out. it's, you know, it's totally non-true. And so some people might say, well, that's okay. But I would simply say this, that when I was, um, when I was search, spiritually searching many years ago, I was reading humanist magazines. That's atheist magazines promoting atheism. Have you ever, anyone do, ever done that? No? Well, I have, anyway. I was, I was discovering wanting to seek the truth, right? So reading atheist magazines. And I noticed that in one of those atheist and humanist publications was this advert for a position for the humanist organization. And interestingly, they had this list of beliefs And one of the key beliefs that you had to be if you wanted to be this person, this humanist organisation, was that you had to not believe in God, and you had to promote that belief of that there is no God throughout New Zealand Zealand society. There was a boundary. Now, you might say that's bad. Well, actually, that makes sense. They don't believe in God. They want to promote that. So the person who's running their organisation should actually believe what they say, and it's a core part of the ethos. And it's the same with the Christian faith. We have beliefs in the one true and living God and it's okay to say this is what we believe and there's a boundary. I may not quite call people heretics if they step outside of it, but there is a sense that we have things that we hold on to. And so in Jude's case, and what was happening in Jude's case, which is that letter, which was wonderfully read by Elon, is that... There was this in the Roman Empire, there was this sexually promiscuous society that was going on in the ancient Greco Roman context where anything was going. And some people were coming into the church and saying, You know what? The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ means you can do anything you want. And they were promoting that belief in the letter. And so Jude was saying, Actually, no that the Christian Bible in the first century AD holds to very different beliefs to the Greco-Roman world where they would expose ch- uh, young children uh, that weren't wanted to be die, where, any, where the patefamilias, the men of the household, could have all sorts of double standards and all those things were going on. The Christian teaching was very, very different and that people couldn't come in. But then he also puts in those at the end, those that are faithful wavering, have mercy on them. So how can you tell the difference between someone who's a false teacher, to use the word of the Bible, uh, what the Bible describes them, and those going through a spiritual crisis? I suggest these only humbly, right? This is just pointers, you don't have to take my word for it. But I would suggest this, a person in a spiritual crisis, or is rethinking things, is seeking truth, they have doubts about what is true and they're wanting to know. The doubts they have are personal. I have doubts about this. Can you tell me, why does the Bible teach this? Because that sounds really intolerant. Something like that. Or I've had this disaster in my life. Why did God allow that? My teacher at school or university, the government is saying this ideology is true, but I've read the Bible and it's saying something different. But the, the, what the government and media in Shortland Street or social media are saying sounds really persuasive. Can you tell me why you think the Bible's right? That's a that's a reevaluation. That's good. While a false teacher is more like the serpent in the garden, did God really say this or that? They're a missionary of doubt. They, not only do they doubt God's word, they want you to as well. And they will use positions of power just to do that. Two, another indicator according to the Bible, is while they look okay on the outside, they often have destructive motives, the predatorial. And three, another indicator is the false teachers don't live their lives in submission to God's word and they don't want you to either. Someone in a crisis wants to know, is the word of God trustworthy? Can I actually believe it? Totally different. And so Tim Keller, the guy I mentioned in New York, he mentioned that in his church, about five, 6,000, that what he had three groups and about a third each. One third of the church were those from hardcore atheist backgrounds, agnostic, intellectual PhDs. This is right in Manhattan City. You've got to pay a lot of money to to get an apartment there. And they had radical encounters with the one true and living God. Amazing part of your church, having these people come in. Another third were Christians who'd moved into New York City looking for a church that really believed in the Bible and the scriptures, but had a credible, intelligent, intellectually robust emotionally satisfying way of presenting it. So they came. But the last third, well, this is how he describes them. However, there was a last third of our regular attenders that are harder to describe. Many had been active in churches in the past, and some of them had come from churches that were conservative. But after coming to New York City, they'd stopped attending church entirely and had given up on Christianity. They'd done what many call today is deconstructing their previous faith. Those who attended told me Redeemer was offering something that was more creditable than they ever experienced before, but they still felt suspended between belief and unbelief. And so for thirty years ago, and so thirty years ago, our church in Manhattan was filled with people in various stages of deconstructing and reconstructing the faith which they had grown up with. So at St Andrews here, I don't think we have a third from an atheist background here or all things. We're in a different cultural context, rural village, South Island. But there will be many here this morning. You've grown up in the Christian faith and you're still fully committed to it. I'm really glad you're here. We need you guys that are here. And it's actually a good space to be in. Pray for this church that we won't have false teaching, but also pray that we'll have mercy on those who are wavering. There will be a a warm, open place for those who are in a different space, who are wrestling things through. Secondly, there may be one person here this morning who's actually spiritually seeking. It's amazing that you're here this morning. Perhaps you can actually look into the Word to discover, is the Bible the Word of God? And there may be someone here this morning going through a spiritual crisis. That's okay. We need to show you mercy, for who knows? It could be me. Or it could be you tomorrow who'll be going through that crisis. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we thank you for your word. And we pray that, Lord, that uh, we would be a church that upholds your word as true. That we would, as best as we can, teach your truths fearlessly. But that, Lord, we also pray as a church we would be open to those whose faith is wavering. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.